Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. second reading this morning is from the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, we are able. Then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the 10 heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, you know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The word of our God. Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks and praise for the gift of your word. We give you thanks and praise that you're the God who desires to be known. And so we pray this morning that you would help us to hear you well to know you better so that we might make you better known in this world. I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds would be acceptable in your sight. We pray in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I I always liked the Zebedee brothers. Um, Earlier in the Gospel of Mark, we hear that Jesus gave them a nickname, the Sons of Thunder, which I think is inarguably cool. Uh, and there's a couple of things that I like about this. Uh, the, the, the first is that Jesus seems to have this relationship with his friends and followers where he gives them nicknames uh, and kind of funny ones. I mean, obviously not every nickname is a term, in a term of endearment, but this, this one has to have been. Right? You can almost see the twinkle in Jesus' eye when he first calls these boys sons of thunder. You know, my father-in-law is like the king of nicknames. Anyone who hangs around long enough gets one. Sometimes you get two if he really likes you. Uh, It never occurred to me before that this might be one of his Christ-like qualities, but there you go. I wonder what nickname Jesus would give you and me. (laughs) I think it's cool to think that the kind of relationship Jesus wants with us is one where he might give us a nickname. 
Anyway, that, so that's the first thing I like about this. Uh, the, the second thing I like about it is, is uh, that Jesus doesn't seem to expect his disciples to be particularly stuffy or invariably well-behaved, <laughs> right? Kids who get the nickname Sons of Thunder, uh, besides having an eternally cool nickname, are probably uh, not that great with rules and restrictions, right? Uh, they're, they're tempestuous, they're strong-willed, they're, they're a bit out of control. You know, these are kids who have a hard time in class, maybe. I, I, one of my brothers, I won't tell you which one because he's not here today. Um, uh, when he was in grade three, his teacher tied him to his chair <laughs> because he wouldn't sit still. And my mother was in full support of this. She totally understood. Uh, we can question the pedagogical value of that. But uh, I, I suspect that James and John probably could relate to this sort of thing. But of course, by the time of this story, they're not in grade three anymore. They're teenagers. And wherever they go, they arrive like a storm, the sons of thunder. You know, they're the kinds of teenagers who probably ask why all the time. <laughs> they're obviously the sorts who begin conversations with a statement like, I'm going to ask you something and I don't want you to say no, because they know that what they're about to ask is not quite within the bounds of appropriateness. This is the end energy that James and John bring, and Jesus is here for it. Right? He loves these guys. He called them. He believes that they, in all of their thunderousness, are integral to the kingdom of heaven movement. This kind of energy, I think, is important for the church sometimes. It's helpful for us to remember that. So that's the second thing I love about the Sons of Thunder, their energy. And I'm going to add a third thing. I love that they are sold out for what Jesus is about. Now, this request to sit at Jesus' left and right hand when he ascends to his messianic throne might be misguided, but they believe it's going to happen, that he's going to sit on the throne. They may not have fully grasped the kind of kingdom that he was here to establish, but they believe that he's establishing an alternative kingdom. Whatever he calls them to, they are all in. Their request comes, I think, from a place of total commitment. And we know that because in Acts 12, James is martyred. He dies for his faith. Right? He's committed to the kingdom of God right to the end and then through it, just like his Lord. The sons of thunder are all in, even if it means that they have to change their expectations. And we know from Acts 12 that they did change their expectations. And in today's story, they obviously need to change their expectations, which is ba a basic expectation of Christian discipleship, I think. Now, there's a reason we talk about conversion and uh, repentance, which means to change our minds so much that it's like we're going a totally different direction. Jesus calls us just as we are and way too much to leave us that way. Amen. When we fall in with Jesus, uh, an awful lot of stuff doesn't quite make sense. He tells us to do weird things. He tells us to cherish the poor and the weak, to uh, love our enemies, not to seek after power, but to shirk it. His kingdom isn't going to come by force, he says, but by love. It's not going to come by us getting what we want, but it'll be fulfilled when God gets what God wants. We're at our most Christ-like when we manage to say, not my will, but yours. Not our kingdoms, but yours. And I believe that to be true. I believe it without qualification. And I totally get James and John here. <laughs> right? Like most people, I like to have my own way. Anybody else? Just me? Okay. Oh, I see one. <laughs> one brave soul. Now, I like to get my own way. Like most people, I'm pretty easily convinced that 
what I want and what Jesus wants are basically the same thing. Now, you know, I may never have used those exact words, but I'm sure I've shown up with that attitude. Jesus, I'm going to ask you to do something for me, and I don't want you to say no. I want you to give me whatever I want. I love, the, I love when the disciples get things wrong in the Gospels. I think it's a bit of grace, you know. I, I love that uh, this beautiful thing that these folks who, who tell us these stories, who save them so that we could learn from them, don't feel any need to sanitize them or whitewash them. The disciples walked in the physical presence of Jesus. They, they heard his teachings. They saw the miracles firsthand, and they still demonstrate a pretty loose grasp on what he's about sometimes. You know, for which I'm terribly grateful. It just you know, makes me feel better. I'm glad to know that I am not the only one. But more than that, I'm glad that Jesus doesn't run them off. He loves them anyways. He loves us just as we are and too much to leave us that way. And I am hopeful because he doesn't leave them in their ignorance. Right? Jesus doesn't leave us in the narrowness of our own desires. Jesus is constantly reminding us that he did not call us so that we could get our way, but so that we could get in on what God wants, right? Because this is the strange thing, that when God gets what God wants, we get what we truly want, what we really want, even if it seems at odds with our hopes and dreams for ourselves. When God gets what God wants, we get what we truly want because God's will for us is good. God's will for us is better than we can ask or imagine. God wants more for us than we would dare ask. And that really matters. We need to understand that. We need to know it. Because this teaching of Jesus isn't very good news if God's will for us is not good, but God's will for us is good. God's desire for us is good. God created this world in goodness and called it very good. And when things went sideways, God promised to make all things new, to bless the world anew, to chase after that goodness again. And that newness means that we can't just keep doing things the way, the, we can't keep doing the same old things. We can't keep doing things according to the way things are. We're called to live for the way that things will be. You know, for James and John, the way things are is the way of the Roman Empire, where peace is achieved by killing everyone who disagrees with us. Uh, where might makes right, and where grasping after power is not only natural, but it's noble, right? Gladiators are rock stars, and Caesar is God. The brothers had a sense that if Jesus was in charge, things would be better, at least for them, but they don't seem to have an imagination for an entirely different kind of rule. They still imagined that the way to make the world better was to grab power, was to be in charge. Now, the Roman Empire is long since gone. The strategy didn't work out particularly well for them. But I, I'm not sure things are altogether different for us. You know, the way things are in our time and place may be different in degree or style, but I'm not sure they're all that different in substance, right? We still make power of virtue. We still make heroes of the powerful, even if we imagine that we're more civilized about it. The bulging self-help section of most bookstores is full of guidance about how to make ourselves the priority, how to get what we want, or at least what we're told we should want, how to take charge and make the world in our image. Much of it masquerades as obviously positive, 
right? And some of it might even be, but I think it's fair to say that we are not generally encouraged to believe that the one who would be first among us must be servants of all. Now, even if Brene Brown, the, the, the uh, American lecturer and Christian, as far as I know, has about a billion hits on her TED talk about the importance of vulnerability, and even if organizational leadership guru Simon Sinek can say things like uh, the selfish fear change and the selfless lead it, which is true. I think the fact that this stuff seems inspirational is because it's counterintuitive to the world as we know it, right? If these folks weren't saying something that seemed kind of new and innovative, they wouldn't get speaking tours and book deals. But of course, Jesus was a little ways out ahead on the power of vulnerability, wasn't he? And the book of Acts taught us that the selfless can turn the world upside down long before Mr. Sinek got a book deal. And I dare say that Jesus calls us to a fair bit more. Because there's something strange that happens. You know, I think lots of people, lots of us, sometimes me, uh, hear this call to selflessness as a roundabout way to get ahead in the world. Right? To be happier, to grow our businesses, to win friends and influence people to gain a kind of power. We're happy to be selfless if it means that we'll be successful, <laughs> which means that Jesus' call to us is still just as absurd as it was to James and John. We figured if they could just be at Jesus' left and right hand, they could really set things right. I think we're constantly tempted to forget that Jesus never seemed to think about his throne. He never worried about his power or his position in the world. He knew about it, never worried about it. James and John and I might have some thoughts about his throne and his power. We might spend some time thinking about our authority and getting what we want, but Jesus was enthralled by something more. Jesus was captivated, was consumed by, he embodied God's goodwill for all things. He was completely sold out, not my will, but yours for the hope that the Father is even now working out in the world. And that's why in the end, he is worthy of the throne. Right In Philippians chapter 2, St. Paul sings this marvelous hymn that calls us to have the same mind as Christ, who though he was equal with God, did not see that as something to be grasped at, but emptied himself all the way for love's sake, for the sake of the world that God wants. And that's why his is the name above every name. That's why we can trust him to sit on the throne of the universe. He's the only one we can trust to sit on the throne of the universe. That's why it is good news that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, because he is the one whose rule and reign is love beyond measure. It will be good, and it will be very good, because it will be God's. But even before we start to think cosmically about Jesus, he's inviting us down into the dust. <laughs> now, before we can understand what it means to say that Jesus is the king of kings, what it means that Jesus is seated on heaven's throne, we've got to follow him step by step with our feet solidly on the ground. Now, before we start thinking highfalutin theological things, we've got to learn to live the stuff of God here and now. And it really is this servant mindset that Jesus calls us to, this downward mobility that helps us do that. And I've come to think about this as less about submissiveness and subservience as about accepting an invitation to put ourselves in a position to see the wonders that God is up to in and around us. Now, because here's the thing, a good servant pays attention to the details. 
Right? A good servant pays attention to the details. Someone who's running over others to get power, someone who lords power over others doesn't really care about the details. They don't care if the means and the ends line up. Someone whose concern is about power reduces people to concepts like work units and productivity markers, voting blocks and taxpayers. Someone who lords power doesn't care where the food comes from, only that it shows up on time. Someone who lords power doesn't care what's happening with your kids, only that the work gets done. Someone who lords power doesn't have time to worry about other folks in the grocery store line, only about getting what they want. Someone who lords power doesn't have time to worry about the consequences of that power, only about maintaining the fact of it. But a good servant pays attention to the details. A servant knows the names and places, knows how the household of God works. A good servant is close enough to the ground to care about what's actually going on, not just about what they think should happen. And when we choose servanthood, when we put ourselves in a, in, in a position to see marvelous things that we might easily overlook if we're concerned about our life plans or our rights or expectations. You know, a servant in the way of Jesus pays attention to the actual stuff of God's kingdom, the people and places where God's grace and redemption, God's love and good purposes are being worked out day by day. Now, and that kind of attention will take our breath away. It'll draw us into something vastly more interesting than the cheap thrills of earthly power, vastly more beautiful than our best will and effort. And I read something this week that really kind of captured my imagination. I'm just going to read it straight from the book it comes from. It's from a book by my friend Preston Couteau uh, called The Bees of Rainbow Falls, Finding Faith, Imagination, and Delight in Your Neighborhood. And he writes this. It says, uh, Ali Benazir, an author and mathematician, was astonished by how rare and beautiful people are. And so he wrote in a whimsical article on, in the, on the Harvard Law Blog about the chances of you and me coming into existence. He worked out the numbers and found out that the mathematical likelihood of any person being born is about 1 in 10 to the power of 2,685,000. <laughs> if you're anything like me, and that doesn't mean anything at all, uh, that's a one followed by millions of zeros. And to put that into context, uh, the estimated number of atoms that make up the world is um, uh, 133 followed by 48 zeros. So the chances of us coming into being are one followed by millions of zeros. Now, according to Benazir, uh, he continues, that the chances of your mom and dad meeting were about one in 20,000. Not bad. Uh, then figure in the chances of just the right combination of sperm and egg connecting on just the right day, and our numbers jump to one in 400 quadrillion. <laughs> now, just in case you're like me and that doesn't mean anything, if you made $5,000 a day from the time Columbus sailed to North America, you would still not be a billionaire, okay? So now we're talking about one in 400 quadrillion. One in 400 quadrillion. Considering that this had to happen just right across generations while avoiding disease, war, and famine, and you'll see the sheer unlikeliness that you should even exist. It's simply staggering. Your chances of being here are about one in 10 to the power of 2,685,000. And here's the thing. 
Right? If we're running around trying to make something of ourselves when something's already been made of us, trying to gain power for ourselves, irrespective of how good our intentions are, and I actually think that James and John probably had good intentions. If we're looking out for ourselves, we don't have time to marvel at the fact of ourselves, let alone the wonder of another person. We just don't have space for that kind of delight. And in fact, delight is a hindrance to power, because if we actually paused to consider what a miracle the person in front of us is, even if they drive us nuts, we would want to serve them. It would not be an imposition, because they are a divine miracle. The sheer wonder of others should make us want their best if we're paying attention. And a good servant pays attention. And of course, that's why we get to pay attention to ourselves, too. We get to take ourselves seriously, too. But we don't do that in the way that the world does it, from a place of anxiety or fear or self-protection or self-promotion. We do it from the conviction that we, too, are miracles. We take seriously that these bodies, this soul, in all of their beauty and brokenness, this wild and precious life is caught up in the sheer grace and wonder of God's creative delight that God loves us everlastingly, which we come to know most fully in the company of Jesus. Now, in the company of Jesus, we get to share in God's goodwill, God's miraculous passion. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood, St. John sings. This word, these people, is where God's forgiveness, God's renewal, God's redemption, God's delight and glory are coming to life if we have eyes to see. And when we can see that, we begin to understand why God in Christ would give everything just to have us. Why God in Christ would give everything just to heal this world, to love this world, to serve this world, and to give his life to save it. And so may we do likewise.